0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it?
1: Dramatic or sort of understatement or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival.
0: You are listening
1: to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R one oh two point seven FM.
0: Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, Street rrrs weekly "Analyze the Shit Out of Everything" show. Bushy is my name, and regular co-conspirator, the wondrous weed wrangler Adam Grubb, is in the house. Hello, Adam. I'm pretty good. Hang on, and Mike's. Uh, that's better. How how are they? <laughs> pretty good. Nice one. Pretty What's good. been keeping you busy? Uh, I'm planning my retirement. Is um kind of alcohol
2: barren, well not that you're allowed to sell what you make so i mm. but i'm getting into you know are making some yet. still oh cool stuff, yeah. But, yeah right so i guess my retirement plan implicitly is that i'll just drink a lot
0: yeah good one yeah yeah that's a good retirement plan yeah <laughs> uh, and, uh, well yeah awesome joining us on rotation the ever brilliant mental muscle flexor sarah coles hello hello how are you be
3: i'm good i'm selling everything that i own on Gumtree. Nice. Yeah, not everything, but a lot of things. Is and this I'm having the tree Grifter? Yeah, I had a grifter today who tried to talk me down so much on price, <laughs> like via text messages. It was pretty funny in the end. So
0: not just hassling. They texted me
3: like, come on, man, it's only five bucks. And then I liked their tones. So I'm like, yeah, okay.
0: But that's atonal. The text message is atonal. And they've just blown a few dollars texting you where they could have just called you on a landline. Did, that, did they use emojis?
3: Um, There were no emojis, but funny, it turned out she was really nice, but we both suspected the other person of being a creepy old man. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: that's the power of the internet right there. (laughs) Everyone can be a creepy old man for a day. Um, In the studio, but not on mic, is the ever-brilliant bicycle whisperer and smooth panel operator Jed McCartney. He will ensure that everything we say, including legal stills and um, and grifting, will go to air this evening. On a sombre note... This evening we will be paying our respects to a man who is arguably one of the major reasons for this show even existing. The eldest statesman of the two co-founders of Permaculture, Bill Mollison, um, has passed away aged 88 this uh, Saturday just gone, having left behind an enormous legacy Um, and we will be chatting about him later in the show. Um, I will now pass to the wonderful Adam to introduce our guest for this evening. We're very happy tonight to have in the studio
2: Elliot Fishman. Elliot is the founder and director of the Institute of Sensible Transport and he's been working in transport policy for the last 11 years having advised the PM's office on national transport policy as well as consulted for the New York City Department of Transportation and to the City of London. He specialises in helping implement and evaluate transport initiatives focused on reducing car use, helping to create livable resilient cities and regional centers and uh maybe later in the show we'll be talking to you about your current passion about uh disruptive uh technologies and driverless vehicles and the like but uh love to hear your story first uh welcome to green the apocalypse it's good to be here thanks thanks for coming in so what what got you um thinking about cars and transport and all that kind of stuff
4: yeah well i think the, the two key experiences that got me interested in this was, uh, firstly, when I left school and went to university, I, was, I found myself on a campus that was right in the centre of the city and uh, I tried to drive uh, into the campus and uh, it was a real hassle. So I just went got myself a bike and was just struck by how convenient and fun it was to get around and it was just the fastest way to get door to door and I kept doing it and that was, well, 15, 20 years ago now. So that was my first experience. That was kind of all about convenience and personal factors. But then I also had some experience working as a podiatrist in a community health centre, and usually I would see about 12 patients a day, Mm. and uh, about 10 of them would have a sedentary lifestyle disease of some sort, so diabetes or high blood pressure or something brought on by not doing enough physical activity. And so uh, rather than treating the symptoms of... Of that uh, lack of physical activity, I thought it would be much better to try and prevent disease by uh, encouraging people to walk and cycle where they could, and that's what got me into transport planning. So I did a postgrad qualification in transport planning at RMIT, and um, the rest is history, I suppose.
2: Did, did any of your patients feel like you were overstepping um, the, the client-doctor p- um, <laughs> relationship when you said, get over your ass?
4: <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually, uh, I, made, I would hope that I was a little bit more subtle than that, <laughs> but I, uh, I did set up a bike program at the Community Health Centre, which, awesome. as I understand, still runs, so providing free or low-cost bikes to people at the Collingwood Housing Estate uh, where they can use them, and then after they've done a small training program, they get to keep the bikes.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, well, let's keep talking bikes. What? Um, so you had personal experience in uh, riding them. I, I, under, I I'm not sure if you heard this, but that the, a human on the bicycle is way more efficient than a human walking, and indeed more efficient than any other animal on the planet.
4: Yeah, that, that's right. That's what I've heard. I think it was an Ivan Illich book from 1973, uh, Energy and Equity, uh, that uh, that. Illustrated that, and uh, yeah, it they you you burn very little energy for the amount of distance that you can travel on a bike, and I think that's part of the reason why people use it. In fact, I think the the former head of Bicycle Victoria, Harry Barber, got into cycling because he was too lazy to walk, uh, by his own admission, <laughs> and uh, and I think that's a good illustration of just how efficient the the bicycle is. That it, it is uh, such a low energy uh, form of movement. Yeah, is that
0: more efficient than like a shark or one of those fabulous? You know, aqua dynamic fish that floats well. I'd be interested to look into that.
2: Well, I, I was looking at some diagram from a 1973 Scientific American, mm. and it put the person on a bicycle at more more efficient than either a a salmon or a pigeon. Wow. <laughs> Now <laughs> and more efficient than a budgery gar by orders of magnitude. <laughs> <laughs> you are greater than a budget while on your bicycle.
0: Well, that Listeners. is fantastic. Um, um, oh, sorry, go on.
2: No, you, well, and obviously, way more efficient than uh, any form of fossil fuel powered transportation, again, by orders of magnitude.
0: Mm. Yeah. What are some of the. So, you've um, obviously strategized uh, getting a bike, getting bikes and low cost bikes into this health clinic but now what you're doing is scaled up in, a, in another order of magnitude. What are some of the you know, m- more simple steps that you took I mean to simplify something fairly massive? How do you begin to analyse a city's transportation needs and make it more efficient, get people onto bikes and so forth? Well,
4: th- the two big things for Australian cities is the lack of bicycle infrastructure. So when you ask people who don't cycle why they don't cycle, the most common reason that will be... They don't feel safe riding on the road, and I can certainly understand uh, that that case. And, and it's it is it feels dangerous uh, yeah. a lot of the time. So that's the key reason. And then the second one, which people don't tend to think of too much because it's it's not front of mind, but the low density nature of our cities means that it's the average trip distance can often be beyond a comfortable bicycle journey. Although a lot of people are surprised to learn that most people work in the municipality municipality in which they live or the adjoining ones so Mm. uh, although a lot of trips are quite short because our density isn't as high as european cities for instance it does make cycling a little bit more difficult so they're the two big things that that uh, that influence people's decision to ride or not. but then there are plenty of other factors like low congestion or free car parking these things also make it more difficult to encourage cycling
3: in your report, it's uh, one of the reports that you've published on the Sensible Transport website. It said that cyclists make up 1% of commuters but 15% of hospital admissions. That's yeah, quite high,
4: isn't it? so, so cyclists or dispropor- well, people on bikes are disproportionately represented in injury statistics uh, compared to the proportion of trips that they make up in a city. And it's even starker when you think about it in terms of the total number of kilometres being travelled because uh, they make up even less than 1% of total kilometres travelled compared to the other modes of transport that are available. So they're a more, they're a more vulnerable <coughs> mode of transport because a, a little bingle in a car uh, might mean that you need to go down and, and get a new... Um, headlight or something, but on a bike it might mean being in hospital for six weeks. So yep. it, they are more vulnerable and that's uh, even more reason why they really need to have protected bicycle infrastructure provided so that people not just feel safe but actually are safer.
2: Yep. Uh, I've heard the argument from people advocating against helmets that the, the amount of injuries that you get riding a bicycle are more than offset by the health benefits that you get from uh, leaving the sedentary lifestyle. Have, have you looked into those figures?
4: Yeah, we have taken a look at that and it's it's a really complicated issue because I, I think although some people would argue that helmets don't uh, reduce the chances of a head injury, I think for most people they, they would see that as a, a pretty uh, obvious uh, Potential benefit of a, a helmet is, is yes. that you're uh, less likely to sustain a serious head injury. The, their argument was it takes so much romance away
2: from riding a bicycle, the wind through the hair, and you look dorky. That so that so, so fewer people actually ride a bicycle um, that would benefit in the risk analysis profile from the from the fitness, even if they're taking a risk of injury. Well,
4: well this is the fear that a lot of countries have looked at. So when the uh, the Dutch Academy of Road Safety uh, look at Australia, because Australia is one of the few countries that have mandatory helmet laws, they come out of it thinking, no, we're not going to adopt mandatory helmet laws because one of the safest things you can do, or one of the things you can do to increase safety the most, is to get more people on bikes. Mm. And because we know that having to wear a helmet discourages people from riding that might have otherwise those countries have decided, let's just get as many cyclists out on the street as possible because once drivers expect to see cyclists on the road, they make sure they look when they open their car door so they don't door a cyclist, which is what happens a lot in Melbourne, Uh, and they're expecting to see cyclists so they do see them and then when when you see a cyclist, you're much less likely to run into them when you're in the car. So it's complicated, but certainly the evidence that I've seen isn't overwhelmingly in favour of mandatory helmet requirements. And I think there's a lot more we need to know about before we could feel comfortable that the policy decision that we've made in Australia was the right one.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you are the director of the Institute of Sustainable Transport. Do you want to sensible talk... Transport. Sorry, Sensible Transport. And uh, do you want to talk to us a little bit about the more ridiculous transport policies that we have in place.
4: Well, sure. Uh, Look, I think a ridiculous transport policy that that we'd want to put in place if we were trying to encourage as many people as possible to use cars as much as possible would be things like mandatory requirements for car parking in new residential developments, uh, which most councils have. Uh, So it's a relic of Mm 1960s-style urban planning that was brought in from the US, where if you're uh, developing an apartment block... You need to uh, jump through all these hoops if you don't want to put in car parking, Mm -hmm. uh, which was seen recently in developments in Moreland and other places. Mm -hmm. Uh, You'd also uh, want to ensure that the allocation of road space was uh, overwhelmingly in favour of the motor vehicle. Uh, That would certainly encourage more people to, to use the car. So there's a lot of things that we take for granted now, because they've been in place for a very long time, that do encourage people to use the car, even for very short trips. And in some of the data that we've looked at, shows that up to 40% of residents of municipalities use the car for trips that are within 10 minutes' walk of their home. So people are using Mm. the car as the default mode of transport, even for for distances where it would have made much more sense to walk or cycle. So
2: uh, other than, like, the obvious, like, environmental issues with... With, uh, with moving a one-ton vehicle t- t- just to get your 10 kilograms of shopping um, and powering it on fossil fuels. What other issues are there with the car in terms of urban planning and livability?
4: The, the obvious problems with the cars one is that they're very big and cities are becoming increasingly dense and big things don't fit in small spaces. So we have this congestion problem and it's a congestion problem that will only get worse and it really comes down to geometry. There's only so many ways that you can design an intersection. At the end of the day, you've got a very big object and lots of people wanting to pass through that intersection and that inevitably uh, results in congestion. So that's a very short-term issue that affects uh, a lot of people in cities every day. Uh, And it really is an inevitable byproduct of heavy car use in cities to have congestion. Uh, the other I mean there are plenty of other issues the other one is safety Uh, Mm. in the US for instance 30,000 people die every year because of road traffic crashes so I mean there isn't another profession other than transport planning where no one loses their job and yet 30,000 people die every year Uh, and that's in the US alone and and globally it's about 1.2 million people die every year which is around the same number of deaths as malaria so it's still very dangerous and actually the it looks like the, the crash numbers and the deaths are increasing recently, certainly in the US, and partly that's as a consequence of distracted driving where people are more worried about updating their Facebook uh, page or whatever it is or uh, sending a text message and Status, they about to crashing car <laughs> There's also, a big one is uh, sedentary lifestyle disease that I that I touched on earlier so people uh, having and this is what Urban Plan is now talking about, building or engineering physical activity out of everyday life and so people aren't Finding the time to go down to the gym, and they're not, and because they're moving around in a the car, they're not getting the level of physical activity they need to protect against these diseases. So that's another yeah. big issue as well.
2: I, I've actually never been to a, a gym. I feel, I don't know if I should be ashamed of that, but I did get a health checkup recently, and the guy was a little bit like, he, he was almost like dismissive. He just looked at me like, You're wasting my time. So, obviously, he thought I was healthy. Um, yeah, well, and, and I that very okay. boring,
4: so you're not missing much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: And, and I think I can put a lot of that down to just the fact that uh, enforced... I, I wouldn't exercise unless I had to to get from A to B, probably.
3: Does that yeah. mean if the um, government invested in sensible transport, they'd save a lot of money in the future for cutting down health...
4: Yeah look absolutely and th- there have been a number of studies some uh, published in British Medical Journal and other medical journals and others published in transport journals quantifying the economic benefit that comes from more people cycling. and yeah. uh, the generally accepted figure is about uh, I think it's a dollar twenty cents for every kilometer cycled. That's the health benefit that the government will get mm-hmm. on a cumulative uh, basis when when people cycle because it reduces the incidence of sedentary lifestyle disease and also reduces air pollution which causes as many deaths as road traffic injuries or, or by some estimates more yep. injuries but you just don't see them because they're not as obvious as um, a road traffic injury
0: indeed uh some time ago you went to amsterdam what were your observations uh, there
4: Well, yeah, I worked for uh, a year at uh, Utrecht University, which is just south of Amsterdam, and the the big observation there was just how ingrained cycling is in their culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then I didn't have to spend too long in the Netherlands to realise that they haven't always had that cycling culture, and in the early 1960s, as people were becoming wealthier, they started to take on the car use patterns of the US and and other developed countries, And they realised fairly early on that that wasn't working for them and uh, they had a really strong response to the road traffic injuries that were occurring in the Netherlands. And there was one, there was a particular journalist whose child had been killed in a car crash and that kind of galvanised the country to do things differently so uh, it was really from the late 1960s and early 1970s that they started building the level of bike infrastructure that they've got now and they spent a huge amount on it even now uh, after 40 years of building bike infrastructure they still they still spend more per head on bike infrastructure than any other country in the UK in the the, the EU
0: rather is that is that a similar pattern echoed along uh, across a lot of European cities
4: spending more on bike infrastructure yeah, yeah yeah absolutely they spend much more per head than australian governments do
0: okay indeed and you are listening to greening the apocalypse on three triple r
2: You are on Green in the Apocalypse on 3 R, and we have been and are continuing to talk with Elliot Fishman, who is the founder director of the Institute of Sensible Transport. And we've been talking about uh, bicycles and their impact and uh, cars as on, on the city and its structure. And it'd be interesting now to put our future binoculars on and talk a little bit about uh, one of your passions and the the thing that you consult to cities about, the disruptive technologies of uh, autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles and ride-sharing programs and that kind of thing. Is is this the main thing that you talk about? And and I'm sure most people have probably heard a little bit, but do you want to outline... What's happening?
4: Yeah, sure. So in the middle of last year, we were asked by the City of Melbourne to look at what sort of what what sorts of disruptive transport technologies are currently either at play or on the horizon that might Mm -hmm. be impacting on them in the future. As the kind of central hub of transport of the transport network and the commercial centre of Victoria, they wanted to know well, how are things like Uber and app-based services going to impact on people's transport decisions and what does that mean for a municipality like the City of Melbourne. Mm -hmm. So we looked at that and so it included things like uh, Uber and uh, drones, driverless vehicles, different sorts of parking technology so that you can uh, top up your parking remotely remotely Uh, while you're away or Mm -hmm. dynamic pricing so that high demand areas have slightly higher prices whereas lower demand areas slightly cheaper Mm. Um, also app-based journey planning services that aren't just linked to the public transport system or the automobile system it links up all different transport modes across the city so Mm. uh, you type in where you want to go and it would bring up the bike share options, the Uber options, the car share options, private car use, and tell you how much each of them cost and how long it would take to get there by those modes. So a whole variety of different transport technologies that are either here or on the horizon. But the big one that came out for us was autonomous vehicles and the huge implications that that could have for the need to own a car uh, in the city and shared transport uh, using what is essentially a robo taxi, and you get in and then it picks someone else up who 's got a compatible journey that you don 't know them and then they get out and then you get out uh, and uh, but the the huge thing, as I mentioned before, was driverless vehicles and that, that is something that could have a tremendous negative impact on cities, but it could also be really good, and it depends very much on the policy. Uh, levers that government choose to apply to driverless vehicles to determine whether it's going to be a good thing for cities or a bad thing. So, how, so what could one of the negative impacts be? Well, the the thing that a lot of people talk about when they're discussing driverless vehicles is the safety benefit, because mm. 92% of all uh, road traffic injuries are caused in part by uh, a driver error. Yep. So, so that's the big benefit that people talk about. But one of the things that Isn't talked about as much, but would have huge congestion implications. Would be that people start, people that are too young or too old to drive Mm. can now summon, could summon a vehicle to collect them. Mm. So they weren't previously uh, logging vehicle kilometres travelled necessarily. They might have been walking or using public transport or not taking the trip at all. Uh, So they're now coming on board using the car. Then there's also the fact that the autonomous vehicle will be much cheaper than the equivalent today, which is a, an Uber or a mm. taxi. Because at the moment, with Uber, for instance, only uh, Uber only get 20% of the cost of the, the fare and 80% goes to the driver. Mm. Now, if Uber get autonomous vehicles happening in cities, as it seems that they will, and they're already testing them in, in US cities, mm. then the cost that that trip will have on the user is much less. And the other important point, and this is something that I think is fascinating, is that people will be able to do other things while they're in the car because they won't need to drive. Like booze on. That's right, or yeah. check their email, yeah, uh, something yeah, yeah. like that, uh, or do both at the same time perhaps. Mm. And the problem with that is that we've had a travel time budget for thousands of years actually. It's called the Mount Chetty Constant in transport planning. And what it says is that throughout history... People have only been willing to spend around 30 minutes to get from their home to their workplace each day. Uh, And so that was the same when people walked everywhere or when people used public transport or driving. It's always been about 30 minutes. Now, if you can do other things while you're transporting yourself, you might choose to live further away because you're doing something else while you're in the car. So cumulatively across the city, that would have a huge impact on vehicle kilometres travelled and therefore congestion. And then the final impact is that... if. If you can have a car that drives itself, you can drop yourself into the city, mm. let's say, for work if you're an office worker in the city. And then rather than paying the high cost for parking, you can just send that car back to your home mm. and then summon it again mm. when you're ready to leave work. Yeah. And so you've doubled the amount of vehicle kilometres travelled for essentially the same the same outcome. Yeah. And cumulatively across the city when you have a lot of people doing that, that would have... A massive impact on congestion especially because those people wouldn't be exposed to the congestion themselves because they wouldn't be in the car for half mm. of that time but they're they're imposing that congestion on other road users
0: well that that last one you mentioned i guess would be based on an ongoing desire to be a private vehicle owner so can that potentially be offset by and again you sort of talked about regulations before that help to nudge people in certain directions if private vehicle registration was cost prohibitive against car share, for example, would that help to eradicate that last point? Or
4: Yeah, I think that's a really good point and I think that is certainly what could happen and that's definitely an option that would be available to government. The, the big thing for transport that I think has, hasn't made sense ever really is that uh, cars are only used 4% of the time, yet they're the second biggest thing that people purchase, for most, most people mm. at least... And there's only 1.1 people in the average car. So it's never made much sense to own them privately, and yet we have, partly because there hasn't been better options that many people could think about. Uh, But now with the potential for driverless vehicles, it makes the economics of having the benefits of the cars, having access to a car without ownership, much more compelling. Mm,
0: Just quickly, I did hear a thing recently about um, during testing of autonomous vehicles, one of them being hacked from a, a significant distance away is that something that you would even factor in or is that something that can be dealt with with good software and
4: well i'm not a software engineer so it's hard for me to comment but that is certainly something that is worrying all of the big automakers and tech companies that are now involved in this and it's not just the the auto companies uh and companies like tesla google and apple and a, a variety of other tech companies looking at this and mm. i think cybersecurity is one of the big things that they're Focused on because that could be very damaging to their brand uh, amongst yeah. other things to
0: have that happen. Well, if you were tech savvy and had the shits with someone, it'd be yeah, very easy. <laughs> so uh, these are these are potential challenges that could come out of
2: um, well, specifically you've been talking about the autonomous vehicles, and um, it sounds like there, there, there could be potential benefits as well. So what are the policy recommendations that you make if you can put them in a nutshell?
4: Well, I think the the overarching one that seemed obvious to us uh, when we are doing this analysis for the City of Melbourne was the need for a road user pricing model. So scrapping vehicle registration charges, which are fixed, it doesn't matter if someone drives 1,000 kilometres a week or 1,000 kilometres a year, they still pay the same amount in registration fee, uh, which doesn't make much mm-hmm. economic sense. And I know the new Minister for Cities in Canberra has uh, said as much. So a road user charge, scrapping the registration fee and uh, also the fuel excise Mm. and just have it based on the amount of kilometres that you do So it's a network-based charge. So every time you get in your car, Mm. uh, you get charged. If you drive on residential streets, you get charged a little bit more on a per-kilometre basis. And and through the pricing signal, you can encourage people, A, to not make the trip by car, but if they are going to make the trip by car, to use the roads that make the most sense from a sustainability and mm. economic productivity perspective. So you don't want cars doing rat running uh, through suburban streets. You want them on the arterials and the freeways. so you charge a cheaper rate for, for those mm. use of those roads. And for people that own a car but don't use it all the time, They would be better off under this system. It's only the people that are heavy road users that would pay more. And when you think of professions like plumbers or electricians that do a lot of driving, because this manages congestion, they might be able to do uh, two or three more jobs each day because the congestion is lower. Because there aren't as many people just doing that two or three kilometre trip that was unnecessary to do in a car anyway. So... Uh, I think it's got a lot of benefits, and it's something that I know that a lot of uh, ministers are looking at closely.
0: Well, that can also that efficiency gained potentially for a tradesman who can then not be stuck in traffic, get extra stuff done in a day, then potentially will go gets everything done you know by Thursday night, has a day off. That also is an efficiency gained, is it
4: not? Absolutely. I hadn't actually thought about that scenario, but that's uh, completely plausible.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So
2: maybe you could paint us a picture in, well, we've got like about three minutes left, but like if if the right policies were made, how this could reshape our experience of being in the city in a positive way.
4: Well, I think, you know, it's really hard to envision what the city might be like transport-wise in the future, but I think in a, a desirable outcome would be one in which people had access to a car when they needed one but they didn't need to buy one in order to get that access and so there'd be a dramatically lower level of car parking required because about 20 to 30% of urban area in a lot of developed cities uh, just dedicated to car parking. So okay. there's a huge uh, space potential mm. there that could be used for um, other purposes. And all the curbside car parking, uh, the residential car parking, so changing the way that we use the space that is currently occupied by car parking would be a, a huge thing.
2: That thing that's going to happen this weekend where everyone pulls their football out at half-time, that could just be
0: like, that's standard issue. That's
4: right, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's
0: <laughs> <laughs> and less uh, damage to mirrors.
4: <laughs> and, and having... Uh, A much more diversified mix of transport options for people so that they don't have this phenomenon that some people are calling forced car use, where you just have to use the car, not because you want to, but just because there's no other easy way to get around. So having a much greater diversity of transport choice and having 20, 30% of trips being done by bicycle is something that cities have found, when they really dedicate themselves to it, can achieve when they allocate road space in accordance to efficiency and sustainability uh, priorities. Mm.
0: Would it be fair to suggest that if you saw a, a marked reduction in car use across a metropolis that you no, you no longer have that argument against increasing train numbers of, oh, the, the level crossings are going to bank up and all that sort of stuff? Is that part of the picture you could envisage there?
4: Yeah, look, I think the the level crossing removal is uh, has got at least as much to do with uh, attempting to reduce uh, congestion for cars Mm. as it has to do with public transport Mm. efficiency. So I think we'll probably see a shift away from many of these car-centric transport policies once the ownership isn't there. Because once you own a car, you've got an investment in it, you've Mm. got a lot of fixed costs, and so it incentivises people to... uh, what some transport economists call uh, chasing your losses and you you just you've spent all that money so you might as well use it for every trip and then voters feel or politicians feel that voters really are focused on policies that favor car use and so you get caught in this cycle of auto dependency which i think disruptive transport technology offers a, a way out of
2: awesome well, we might have to let you go, Elliot, but we have been talking to Elliot Fishman, uh, Director of the Institute of Sensible Transport, and I've genuinely, genuinely learnt some stuff tonight, so thank you very much for coming in. It was a pleasure, thanks. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You are on Greening the Apocalypse on 3 Triple R, and as Bushy said at the top of the show, a man. Without whom this show probably would never have existed. Bruce, Bruce Charles, better known as Bill Mollison, uh, died in, on Saturday in uh, Hobart at the ripe old age, at least of 88. Uh, well, we're going to do a little bit of a tribute to him, but first of all, we might just hear a little bit of Bill in his own words, and uh, I'll just mention that he, this is in a course I did with him in 2005, just a little bit of the audio, and he does refer a little bit to something on the, on the blackboard, which is to do with the scope of permaculture, and he's talking about how it's got, it's not just about gardening, but it in, involves all the human systems, including organisational structures, what he calls the invisible structures. But here's Bill.
1: Uh, permaculture, uh, originally, we, we uh, invented the word. It comes from two Latin roots permanence, to persist indefinitely, and culture. Culture generally are the practices that support human occupation of the earth can be agriculture, uh, aquaculture, permaculture. Permaculture is the best one. But if you put this, this down, this is what permaculture is. It's very hard to explain to people <laughs> what it is. And it's the application of common sense design to a place and people in it. And it involves all this, the visible and the invisible. And uh, we differ from anyone else I know in that we adopt three ethics. Uh, uh, We take care of land, we take care of people, that's a corollary of taking care of land, and we return our surplus to those two ends. Three very simple ethics. See, that's where we differ from universities and colleges and churches and all that. We have ethics. And there's nothing here about, you know, sodomising anybody. (laughs) So we think we're uh, morally better than the rest of those bastards. Uh, I've fought clear of religion all my life for another reason altogether. I simply have a horrific fear of eternal life. I think it would be the worst punishment you could ever walk into. I want to avoid it. And if it means I never pass the church door, that's fine with me. You can have eternal life. And I don't know what you did to deserve it because it's a shocking punishment. You know? Oh, God. I've never, I've never been so bad that I deserve eternal life. I think the first day is enough to make you want a suicide, isn't it? I've bonded, haven't I?
2: <laughs> so that was uh, the, the classically provocative uh, Bill Mollison, the rogue and father uh, of permaculture, who died on saturday in hobart aged 88 that was about 10 years ago when he was in his late 70s on a course uh, in melbourne uni that i was lucky enough to attend uh, but let's just reflect on the man's life he was uh, born in stanley in 1928 uh, that's in tasmania in the northwest and he left school at the age of 15 and he worked a number of jobs including he was a shark fisherman and a seaman he was a forester for a while and a mill Mill worker, and later as a, he was a CSIRO wildlife officer, and he would spend uh, days and weeks and weeks actually out in the bush without seeing anybody else. And he said he would get a bit of a shock when he saw his own reflection um, <laughs> in, in the stream water, and he. Uh, but in his, I think it was in his late 30s, he, he, he went to university and he did this massive undergraduate degree in every field he could and became, uh, for the next 10 years, a, a tutor and a popular teacher at the University of Tasmania and started developing uh, his ideas about uh, h- how we can... Designed better systems than what he saw around which were these incredibly destructive methods of feeding ourselves and he met the young david homgren in 1974 who was a undergraduate at a nearby uni and together they wrote permaculture one which uh, was the first uh, permaculture text Mm. and it looked very much at using perennial crops and Uh, working, as they would say, with nature rather than against it to provide for human needs and trying to create these ecosystem-like structures or food-producing systems with design. And then he founded the Permaculture Institute in 1978 and taught the first ever permaculture design certificate the next year, which he then travelled the world uh, spreading spreading the word of permaculture. And in 1988, he published the Permaculture Designer's Manual, co-authored with his wife at the time, uh, Rini Mia Slay, which is in the encyclopedia of the field, mm. if not in tone, because uh, his tone does come through and his playfulness <laughs> and his exaggeration and his brilliance. A- and and he was a great – he was a raconteur and, a, and the classic – strong headed wild man founder of permaculture, who saw you know through the hedonistic eighties you know he you needed that ego and that uh powerful personality mm. and and he was a great iconoclast and he said he was driven by anger <laughs> yeah r- rather than love <laughs> <laughs> and uh and and he was a character and his um and for all the whirlwind of his life, he's left an incredible uh, legacy behind.
0: Mm. Thousands upon thousands, possibly millions, I suppose, have, if they're not currently you know, practitioners of permaculture or, or active in it, have, have been exposed. Pe- I'm, dozens and dozens of people I know who if I mention permaculture to, them, they go, oh, yeah, that was that Mollison guy. Yeah. Um, and I always say to them, Mollison and Hongren. Quick question, Adam. If if David Holmgren is to be uh, Luke Skywalker, do you see Bill Mollison more as Obi One or Yoda, or, <laughs> a, funny, little, or was, a little bit of Anakin I was kind Skywalker of thinking too? Them,
2: a little bit more biblical, like your Old Testament God and your New Testament. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he. he yep. Yeah, um, he he's really influ- influenced a lot of people, and I. And I you know, he was he was a prickly character, but mm. um, having spent a little bit of time in his presence, you couldn't help but uh, love the man for doing it his way. Mm. Yeah,
0: there was a video I watched a while ago. I, I can't even remember the specifics of it, but he, I think he was talking about using uh, pressurised air um, and these different means of of creating pressurised air. Things like these tromps oh. and these yeah, loves <laughs> the tromp. Yeah, <laughs> All these,
3: what's a tromp?
0: It, it's this kind of funny hydraulic mechanism that you can use to compress. Air yeah. uh, it requires you know gravity and, and fall and things like that. Um, I can't explain very well, but we might be able to find a picture of it or a link. Um, but, I mean, his brilliance
2: was in, uh, and this is in uh, David Hongren's words. He wrote a, a lovely little tribute, and mm. uh, um, that Bill's brilliance was in gathering together the ecological insights, principles, strategies, and techniques that could be applied to create create the world. Uh, we do want rather than fighting against the world, we reject.
0: That's right. Well, this, this Trump video was interesting because at one point in it, he's, he's sort of been quite cheeky with his audience and he mentioned how you can use compressed air to power vehicles and I think they did a little bit in the early days of motor cars and you could use compressed air to power refrigeration. And so then he started to go off on this tangent about heading off for a picnic with uh, cold chicken and gin frozen or kept cool using this Trump method of compressed air and any you know he he clearly knew that he was diverting and he said oh so why why do i bring this to you and he said it's to bring you joy you know and he was talking about mixing up a gin buck and he gave everyone the recipe on how to mix a gin buck and that sort of stuff and so yeah i have never met him personally but read his books and and things like that and been quite inspired by a lot of the thinking of permaculture and and the vast massive amount of branched out uh, knowledge that it's created to know that despite his prickliness his curmudgeonliness and so forth that he could still have fun with it and this this video i was watching can't have been more than maybe five or six years old now Mm. so um yeah
2: Yeah, he was teaching uh you know right up until a few years ago and um yeah tireless Mm. in his efforts indeed he was
3: how did he and david Hongram meet
2: uh, well, David was, uh, it, well, according to the story I heard, I think from David is that Bill's house in Hobart had become overrun. He, he likes his friends to be, uh, like, he, um, like he, they were fishermen, hard living types mm. and they declared the house, the people's Republic of whatever street and, um, but it got a bit out of control and. Yeah, things were. Bill and his wife fled for their own sanity. And when they reinvaded and kicked everybody out, and Bill's wife um, didn't want to live with anybody ever again, uh, here comes this upright young boy, David Holmgren. You know, young man who is the kind of person you can introduce. Yeah, (laughs) 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 introduce to you know to your parents. He's 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 such a um, uh, thorough thinker and quietly spoken person and it was because uh, that that was the kind of person that he could get to live in the house. They ended up living together and that two sides of the personality, Bill, the brilliant ideas man, some of them great, some of them really out of left field. Mm. And David, the thoughtful, thinking and incredibly intelligent Mm. um, filter of those ideas, almost the opposite of what you would expect with their 30-year age difference, with Bill being much more the older guy. Um, David, like the more thoughtful elder of the relationship and Bill, Mm. the young, crazy ideas man in personality. And that's how... Yeah, that um, they, got, they wrote the first permaculture book.
0: It's, um, it's an amazing life lived. I, I, I don't think we could call it a tragic loss. I think he's passed on and he has... And hopefully he hasn't passed on to anywhere for the eternal as oh, he wished. Can you imagine that? <laughs> He'd be shattered. Yeah. Thank you, Elliot Fishman, for coming in this week to talk to us and thank you, Jed, as always, for hitting the buttons. Colsey, always big hugs. Yep. Yep. Adam, what's on next week? Next week, oh, I forgot to look it up. I think I know what it is,
2: so <laughs> oh. we're talking, aren't we talking um, about uh, uh, the Growing Abundance Project? That sounds right. That sounds right. With uh, the Did wonderful just make that up? Nikki Valentini, Nikki uh, which is a, an amazing uh, food, local local food, um, kind of hippie, getting hippie food into school tuck shops in Castlemaine. That'll be quite That'll be interesting.
0: <laughs> well, Bushy's my name. We will see you next Tuesday. But until then, have all the fun and go doggies.